Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. We're glad you've joined us and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information on additional studies and resources from Day by Day. Thanks again for being with us. As children of God in Christ, we've been given a responsibility, a sacred trust, a stewardship. What is our responsibility and what does it entail exactly? Well, continuing in Colossians chapter 1, Pastor Phil explores what the Apostle Paul has to say about this. Let's listen. The word steward is what you are. Stewardship is what you've been given to do. A steward is basically a servant that has been put in charge of another man's household. You can read Genesis 39, how Joseph was Potiphar's steward. Potiphar was gone a lot as an officer of Pharaoh. And Joseph stayed back and he managed the household, made sure that supplies were bought, servants were fed, and so on. He didn't own any of Potiphar's stuff. He was placed over it as a steward. And Paul is saying, God has placed not only me, Paul said, but earlier in 1 Corinthians 4, he said, God has made all of us as his children stewards. We are stewards of the household of God. We don't own anything, really, not yet. Someday we're going to own it all. But right now we are stewards, all right? And God has given to each of us a work to do, a stewardship, a ministry. And we are going to be judged and rewarded. I mean, judged not in the punitive sense, but judged and rewarded by how faithful. Remember what Paul said? It's required of a steward that he be found what? Faithful. We're going to be rewarded someday based on how faithful we were in managing whatever God gave us to do. Our own households, our finances, stewardship of finances, money, of our children, our time, our ministries. For Paul, it was all about being faithful to what God had given him. Was Paul faithful to the end? I have finished the what? I finished, I finished my course, my ministry. I, I've done all that God has given me to do. You know, I'm convinced that God gives us enough time to do everything he has called us to do and a lot of extra time for the messing around stuff, for the backsliding and the, you know, you know, stumblings and all. I believe God gives us plenty of time, plenty of extra time to do all that he has given us to do. And we'll get it done if we want to do his will, if we really want to do all the work he's given us. If we want to be faithful, believe me, he'll give us plenty of time to do what he's called us to do. All right, verse 26, he talks about the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to us. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word mystery there in verse 26 is the Greek word mysterion, and it means a secret that was kept from the Old Testament saints, but something that God has now revealed to us who are in the church. So something was secret. We say a mystery. It's unknown, right? It's an enigma. But when Paul uses the word, it says something that was previously hidden or kept secret. 
from the Old Testament saints, but now God has revealed to us this mystery that the Old Testament saints weren't told. And listen, Peter says angels desire to understand. What is it that angels desire to understand? I mean, angels stand in God's presence. Angels see his glory. Angels are in heaven right now. I mean, what is it that they don't get? What is it they, they long to understand, Peter says? They desire to look into this. What is it? Paul tells it right here. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Angels would love to understand how God inhabits his people. See, this was the mystery that God didn't tell the Old Testament saints, that someday God himself was going to indwell his people and they would become living temples for him to live in. In fact, the word dwell there, we read in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, the very same idea that Christ dwells in us. The Greek word means to settle down and feel at home. To settle down and feel at home. Jesus dwells in every one of his people. Does he feel at home in the hearts of every one of his people? Well, that depends how much carnality he has to share that heart with. I mean, the more carnality we have, the less comfortable and at home he feels. I mean, some Christians invite him in and lock him in a back bedroom. And the rest of the house is off limits, right? The rest of their heart is off limits. He wants to come in and make changes. He wants to clean things up. He wants to get rid of the old furniture, you know, the busted couch, the stained rugs, the junk closets where we're stuffing all the sin that we don't want to deal with and locking it up. He wants to clean all of that out. So he truly feels at home in our hearts. You know, the Gnostics loved this word mystery because they believed they had, they had unlocked secrets and spiritual mysteries that no one else but them could understand, which, by which they then believed that they could know God more deeply than anyone else. You don't need Jesus. We have the secrets. And Paul takes that word from them and says, look, guys, this is the mystery of the ages, that God himself would indwell each believer in Christ and as he did, he would bring them into a knowledge of God that no chanting, meditation, no little formula could ever bring you into. I mean, how much closer can you get to God than, have God than having God living inside you? And when Jesus moves in, Paul said he's going to give us wisdom and spiritual understanding and power. In fact, in verse 3 of chapter 2, he said, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want, you want wisdom, guys? You want knowledge? Paul says, except Christ. You're going to have everything you need. And it's not going to be this baloney, demonic, esoteric stuff. It's going to be true knowledge, true wisdom from God. Look, the church was a mystery that was hidden from the Old Testament saints. We know that. That God would take Jew and Gentile believers and someday would make them brand a brand new creation called the church. The church is a brand new creation. Something that didn't exist before, uh, before the uh, day of Pentecost. That's when the church began. And I will let you read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 through 7, because Paul talks about this. In verse 27, Paul says to them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We could paraphrase that and say, when Jesus Christ is truly in you because you are saved, that is the assurance that you will be glorified someday in heaven. When Jesus moves into a person's heart, that is eternal. That's eternal. Paul said, whom he has predestined, foreknown, he has predestined, right? Whom he has predestined, he has what? Called. 
whom he has called, he has justified, saved. Whom he has justified, he what? Will glorify. Nobody is lost. If you are foreknown and uh, predestined and called and justified, in other words, you're saved, you will be glorified. Nobody falls through the cracks. All the Father has given me, Jesus said, will come to me. And I will raise it up at the last day. I will lose none. All right, verse 28 and 29. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. Paul said, this is why I live. This is, this is what I live for. This is why I'm so zealous, all right? Look what he said here. In verse 28, Him we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom, right? That we may present every man, every Christian perfect or mature in Christ Jesus. Paul said, we preach to the lost and we teach the saved. Simple, but you can't imagine how many churches don't do that. They preach to the lost and they preach to the saved. Every Sunday is the gospel. No wonder people aren't growing. Once they're saved, they don't need to hear the gospel every week. Now they need to be taught the word of God. And listen to what Paul said. When he preached the gospel to the lost, he always included a warning for them to flee the wrath that was coming. When Paul preached the gospel, he said, I warn every man. See, if you don't hold people's feet to the fire, as it were, a little bit, and let them know that, look, the reason you need to be saved is because there's a day of judgment coming. And if you don't receive Christ, you're going to spend eternity in hell. That's that hellfire and damnation preaching that we don't hear too much about anymore. No wonder people aren't getting saved like they used to. Oh, they're going to church, but it's all about God's love, what God's going to do for me. That's why I'm going to church, because I want the goodies that God's going to give to me. It's not about fearing judgment, because we're past that in a lot of churches, they say, all right? We've got to keep it warm and positive, right? Paul says, not me, man. When I preach the gospel, I warn every man to flee the wrath to come. And then when they get saved, Paul says, my goal is to teach the saints, Acts 20, verse 27, the what? Whole counsel of God. So as we come to Colossians chapter 2, guys, Paul continues to contend for the truth by coming against the heresies that had infiltrated the church at Colossae. Now, in chapter 2, he continues by holding up the sufficiency of Christ against the teachings of philosophy, of Jewish legalism, of Gnostic mysticism, and asceticism. These were the four big attacks against the truth, uh, not just had made their way into Colossae, but throughout the uh, known world at that time. Four false philosophies that Paul was coming against. And in the first seven verses, he does so by basically encouraging them and us to know the truth, to know the truth. You know, I don't take a lot of time reading all kinds of stuff about the cult. I do try to familiarize myself. But I just think that if we take the time to know the truth, when the error comes, you'll see it. Uh, this is what I've been told. I've never confirmed it. But years ago, I heard that when they train a person to work in banks and things to, to spot uh, counterfeit bills and things, for the first, I don't know, six months, they don't even let you touch a counterfeit bill. You just have to study the real thing so much 
and know it, how it feels, how it looks, every little piece of that paper money, so that when a counterfeit comes across your desk, you know it immediately. And that's how we should approach God's Word. We should know it so well that when any kind of counterfeit, any kind of heresy, and some are more blatant than others, right? Some are real easy to spot, some are quite subtle. And if you don't know the word, you're going to get drawn in because it has so much truth. You know, in Greek, and some of these Greek words can be, I don't know, 10, 12, 13 letters long, one word. If you put an A in front of it, it negates it. That's how it is with truth. You can have a whole bunch of truth, you mix a little error in, and you negate all the truth. So be careful. It's, it's more dangerous to know a little truth, I think, than sometimes no truth. Because if you know a little truth and you hear a little truth from somebody as they're teaching, oh, I've, yeah, I remember reading that, or my pastor taught that, this guy must be right on. You've got to be very careful with that kind of a mindset, all right? Look, the greatest weapon against error is truth. The greatest conqueror of darkness is light. Jesus said to his disciples, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You shall know the truth and the truth will make you free, free from error. That's the very thing Paul told Timothy. He was a young pastor in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. Paul said, Timothy, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Not saved from hell. Timothy was already saved. He was a pastor. Saved from false doctrine. Timothy, the best way to guard your congregation against error is to just keep teaching them the truth. If you keep teaching them the truth, they will know error when it comes across their path. Now, verse 1, Paul says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. The churches of Colossae and Laodicea were about 10 miles apart from each other, and about 100 miles from Ephesus, located in the region of Phrygia in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was the kind of the capital church uh, and city in that region. That's kind of interesting because you know how God works. Here we're in Arizona last week, and I had never seen the Grand Canyon. And Cindy and Ange had gone the year before, and they had gone up there. And said, we got to go see it. It's a four-hour drive. I'm thinking, okay, it's got to be pretty good for me to drive four hours to see anything. <laughs> Uh, and it was pretty spectacular, i got to say. But my daughter, as we went that day, she wore a T-shirt that said, Jesus, and a heart under it, and me. Jesus loved me, right? And so we're walking, you know, and the bus drops you off at various viewpoints, and you get your pictures and stuff. As we are stopped at this one viewpoint overlooking the canyon from a certain direction, uh, Angel's walking, and this Middle Eastern gentleman looks at her T-shirt and says, and he loves me too. And so we stopped and said, are you a Christian? He goes, Yes, he said, I pastored in Ephesus, Turkey. He said, I was a Muslim, and I converted to Christ. He said, and we had a church there, and they threw me in jail eight times. They threatened to kill me. They busted out windows in our car. They took three of my Christian friends, all ex-Muslims, Christians, and they slit their throats. He started to tear up. I said, man, his name is... Um, Yuxel. I said, Yuxel, it really costs you guys something to be Christians over there, doesn't it? He said, yeah, I was in prison. They put a knife to my wife's throat. They didn't cut her throat, but they, I mean, slit her throat. But they pressed so hard it did cut, and they left a scar. And they were threatening to kill me. Uh, he got out, 
and now he lives uh, in the States, and he uh, had five young Muslims there with him who were, had converted to Christ, and he's discipling them, and I guess they were taking a little break at the canyon. I said, well, Yaksal, I said, um, are people in Turkey open to the gospel? He said, no. You know, I said, I think I know why. I think you're, you're moving from a pro-West, moderate Muslim country to an anti-West, extreme Muslim country. And because of all that zeal from Islam, it's pushing out. And of course, the persecution uh, that's going, on, going along with it towards any who are Christians is really causing the gospel to uh, not be very popular over there. I said we'd pray for, for him and uh, for those still over there. But Paul had visited Asia Minor many times, but he had never actually visited Colossae and Laodicea. And so the Christians there had never actually met Paul, but he had heard of their faith, and as he put it in verse 1, was in great conflict for them. The Greek word for conflict there is a word that we get our word agony from. Paul, even though he had never met these, these people, was very burdened for them and began to pray immediately. In fact, he began to agonize for them in prayer. And again, folks, that begs the question that if Paul could be so burdened for the well-being of people that he never met, so much so that he would pray for them constantly, how burdened are we for the people that we know well, that we see every day? I mean, do we have that kind of a passion to pray for loved ones, co-workers, neighbors, and friends who don't know Christ. But in verse 2, Paul tells us exactly what he was praying for the Christians in Colossae for. First of all, he said that their hearts may be encouraged. The word encouraged there is the Greek word parakaleo, and it literally means to come alongside someone for the purpose of strengthening or helping them. It was used by Jesus of the Holy Spirit in John 14. This is why he said, I am not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to send to you another what? Helper. Even the Spirit of truth, right? Who will abide with you forever. I can't be with you anymore walking alongside of you and helping you in your ministries and so on. But I'm not going to, when I go back to the Father, I'm going to pray that the Father send you the Holy Spirit. Another helper who will abide with you forever. And he won't just come alongside you. He's going to live where? Inside you, all right? Um, but Paul was basically saying that the Colossians, you know, two things. This was a church that was under attack. And Paul said, you know, when a church is under attack like this, whether it's outward persecution, inward spiritual attacks with false doctrine all, the body of Christ needs to mobilize and come alongside each other to strengthen one another. But ultimately, we need the Holy Spirit to strengthen us, right? To, to be able to stand firm. And, and that's what Paul wanted. He wanted the Spirit to strengthen them that they might stand fast in their faith against the onslaught of the false doctrine coming into their church. So that was the first thing, that their hearts might be encouraged. Secondly, that they might be knit together in love. The Greek word for love there is agape. It's a word that when used of God's love, and it's almost always used of God's love in the New Testament, it means an unconditional, sacrificial, selfless, kind of love, a love that puts others first. That's God's love. You know, it's a great source of encouragement. Paul says that, you're, that you might be knit together in the love of God. It's a great source of encouragement when fellow Christians stand with you in times of trouble and difficulty, isn't it? You know, you guys have so mobilized uh, around me since I had uh, knee surgery in February and 
all the cards and the letters and the phone calls and I'm praying for you and we're praying. I know it was the prayers of God's people that really got me through and healed so quickly. And then of course my mom came down with cancer and again you guys stood alongside of Cindy and I and been praying for her and as we speak tonight she's cancer free. She's got a couple of more chemo treatments but that's just a precautionary. Uh, right now she is considered cancer free. Uh, and the doctors are amazed at how she has progressed. It's, it's been a miracle. My Uncle Rick, you guys stood alongside of us to pray for him. He had a bad heart. His heart was beating and fluttering, beating and fluttering. It was just destroying his energy. It was, it, he couldn't even get off the chair and walk across the, the, the room without being so out of breath he could hardly breathe. And so he had to go in for a very tricky operation. And we brought it to the body of Christ. You guys stood with us. And he went in for this very tricky operation where they had to actually uh, lead uh, electrodes up to the heart and burn the part of the heart that was causing the fluttering. The doctor said, I can only take care of that one problem. You got two serious problems here. The one we can handle. The other one is a very lengthy, difficult operation. Your heart is not good enough. I don't think you're going to live through it. Well, doc, do what you can. He was telling me the story. Went in for the surgery and came out. And after he was in recovery, when he woke up, the doctor came out to him. So I got to tell you something. I can't figure it out. I just I have no explanation for it. You know, we fixed the one thing. The other thing just took care of itself. I tried to make your heart do that. I couldn't get it to do it. You're healed. My uncle said, that's because my God doesn't do anything half-hearted. <laughs> what an opportunity to witness, right? And you know, this is the beauty of the body of Christ, isn't it? When we all go through different times of trials, adversity, I've got a wayward child, I've got a marriage that's falling apart, I've got an unbelieving spouse, I've got this, we have financial problems. We rush to each other's side to strengthen one another. We don't go through things alone as the people of God. We have each other, we have a family. And you guys are closer to me than some of my biological family. Because there is a, a bond there in Jesus that supersedes any kind of earthly bond. Although we do love our earthly families, of course. So he wanted them, first of all, that their hearts might be encouraged, that they might be knit together in love. Number three, that they would enter into all riches of the full assurance of understanding. The expression full assurance is kind of interesting. It literally means to be under full sail. <laughs> Uh, to be sailing ahead uh, as fast as you can. The idea is that believers should be moving along spiritually. That they should be moving forward for God into the full riches that are theirs in Christ. We have great riches in Christ. Unfortunately, even though the money is in the bank account, we lack the faith to write the checks. And I'm not talking as a positive confession, word of faith guy. I'm just saying that in Christ we've been given all spiritual blessings, right? And yet we live like spiritual paupers so many times. We don't really trust God's going to work. Yes, but He's promised you. Yeah, I know, but I have a hard time believing He's going to bring the money in this month for the rent. Or there's going to be food. We're out of, my husband's been out of work for six months. Yes, but He's promised you that. See, we just need to receive what God has promised and thank Him for it even before we see it materialize. Faith 
thanks God, and trust God for what he's promised long before we see the reality of that thing in our lives. That's what pleases God. It's easy to thank and praise God when the prayer's been answered and you're looking at the thing. It's a lot different to say, God, I trust you. You know, like Habakkuk. Though there's no crops in the fields or in, in the barns, there's no animals in the stalls, though every visible means of support and sustenance is gone, yet I'm going to trust you, Lord. You've promised to take care of us, and we're going to trust you. And God honors that kind of faith. Now, this expression, full assurance, is used three times in the New Testament. It's connected to three different concepts. The full assurance of salvation, talked about in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. The full assurance of understanding, spoken right here in Colossians 2, verse 2. And the full assurance of hope, mentioned in Hebrews 6, verse 11. First of all, the full assurance of salvation. There's a lot of Christians who are not really sure that they're saved. Why is that? Well, sin will not rob you of your salvation, I'm convinced. Others would disagree with me. I believe if you've given your heart to Christ, you are genuinely saved forever. But if you do sin, what that does is it robs you of the assurance of your salvation. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for being with us, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day.